the magenta pills. Your dispensary of red, black and white capsules amidst the slow motion collapse of the empire. Hosted by Gregory Singh. Okay, hey everyone, and thank you for joining us once again here at Magenta Pills. Uh, today I have an amazing guest with me to discuss an incredibly polarizing and prescient issue that is ravaging cities, healthcare systems, and families. I'm speaking about the unprecedented and lethal expansion of the fentanyl and opioid epidemic across North American communities, a pharmacological plague that is killing at least 85,000 North Americans every year. And in aiming to explore the complexities of our modern landscape, I want to delve into the firsthand experiences of our first responders tackling the omnipresent reality of drug addiction that exists in all our communities. From the front line of emergency response itself, we'll unravel the challenges they face in dealing with the fentanyl-related incidents, the personal toll it takes on their well-being, the broader impact on community safety, and what, if anything, we can do about it. So with that, I introduce to you Paramedic Anon. He is a registered and practicing paramedic, not EMT, who wishes to be kept anonymous because of the potential backlash he could face for giving honest opinions. So thank you, sir, for sitting down to talk with me. Yeah, so thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. The opportunity to sit down and talk with you. And yeah, I'm looking forward to any interesting questions because there's just so much going on. Uh, yeah, so I guess first of all, and and be as vague as you want to be about it, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your educational background and your service time? Yeah, so basically there's options to do for education. You can do a two-year program or you can do most of the time fast-track versions of that. So that can look like 18 months straight through basically four semesters of extremely focused um, studies, you could say. From that point, you would go on to do a provincial exam and then go through your hiring process, depending on which area you are in, in North America, um, that can vary, but that's what you'd be looking at, uh, towards our, our, our location. Um, yeah, so basically that would, you know, I did a fast track version of that 18 months. And then from that point I got hired out of the gate, um, right into the force. Basically you do a, a certain amount of hours just prior to finishing your schooling. So you do, you know, depending on your area, you do like maybe five to 700 air hours of clinical, uh, which is unpaid and you'd be doing, doing everything you'd be doing as a medic, basically, um, working with a, a full crew. So you could be with a more advanced care crew or, or more of a primary care. Um, yeah. And then, and then right out to the force was kind of my, my background as I right out of school, went straight to work and, uh, I've been doing it since. Yeah. So what's that length of time? Like how long have you been a paramedic? So working, you'd be looking at fifth, sixth year. Okay. Yeah. And then right, right out of, was it college or university, that program you were describing co college? Yeah. So it's into the, it's. I believe it's going to an advanced diploma at this time. I don't know if it's a three-year yet, actually. I don't know if it's a three-year program now, but that's what they've been talking about because it is so condensed that, yeah, so you'd be looking at, you know, two to three years. Okay, and when you first uh, decided to get into this field, 
what what drove you to to practice medicine? Do you, would you call it that practicing medicine? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that's the best word to use for it because really that means, you know, that's the most accurate interpretation of what it is. It's continuing education, right? So we're constantly adapting with, um, you know, physicians and trauma teams and high levels of medicine. We're con continually practicing medicine. So yeah, I would say that's that's the most accurate way to put it. Um, but what was the first part of your question there again? Oh, just what initially drove you to get into that field? Yeah, so I mean, I, you know what? I knew a lot of people in healthcare and I knew a lot of people in the trades. So I kind of knew both sides of it. And I, I had, you know, some other experiences in different fields like sales and management. And for me, um, I think it was a challenge. It was like an opportune challenge in a way. It was it was like something I could attack and uh, kind of kind of go after. Um, something I knew that wasn't going to be easy, but at the same token, rewarding. Things have changed a lot, even in the past five six years. So that's you know that's a big thing too. When I was going into it, things were a little bit different, even from you know going back to like 2018, right? Um, big difference from now and then so it's uh yeah it's I guess, interesting i guess what i was kind of gonna follow up with was um i, I was there a major difference between what you initially perceived you'd be doing and then what you are actually doing on a day-to-day -day basis because my my understanding is that a lot of your job these days in many major cities across north america that you're preoccupied largely with drug and alcohol related incidents. Is that a fair kind of assumption? Yeah. And I think I could speak for a lot of us that, you know, we really enjoy being paramedics and we enjoy helping people and we enjoy those calls where we get to, you know, render treatment that is life-saving or it's administering a drug that makes immediate impact that is indefinitely helping that patient at that time. And I think a lot of us got into it for that reason. And the burnout rate, you know, like over 50% of paramedics are experiencing, you know, burnout rates, high burnout rate, right? Um, that being said, a lot of it is, you know, unfortunately, the a lot of society has gone to heavy drug use, heavy alcohol use, and which fills up an emergency room. Uh, you know, there are resources out there where people could stay, but a lot of the time they're filled up and they're overflowing. People can't get, a, you know, a spot at that facility um, to get assistance or to to have food or to have a warm bed at night. So that affects the hospitals, right? So we only have so much resources just going back to what you you know your question i think i think a lot of it has changed now because so much of our time is taken up by certain uh patient patients i guess you could say uh yeah yeah so yeah on that on that uh question so i i know it, it might be hard to kind of uh you know estimate but to the best of your abilities what 
kind of time are you spending dealing with opioid and fentanyl related things compared to everything else? Like what, what, what would you say is the makeup on a typical week when you're responding to these situations? What, how much time is dedicated to this compared to, you know, uh, heart attacks, car crashes, right. random injuries, stuff yeah. like this? It's a good question. Um, it can range, right? So it can be very random sometimes, but, uh, but oftentimes, you know, you could see, you could see anywhere from two to four overdoses in a shift, you know, um, that's, that's not, that's not unrealistic for, for most major cities that, you know, say are over the pop, you know, over the size of 80,000 people, uh, just say it just as a, as an example, right. Um, so at least 10%, at least five, five, 10%. Um, but you know, it, it really depends on where you work too, but it's not uncommon to see two to four, you know, two to three overdoses per shift overdoses on several you know it could be a lot of different things right fentanyl is a big one uh for sure right now and it has been for a while and it seems it seems like it's gotten better and worse but you know there are some more outreach programs that they've set up there has been some help but then it seems like it's just not working at the same time it, it's some of it has maybe helps some problems but it's still lacking and there's still a lot of uh support that's needed unfortunately it's a lot of people are paying the price and it's a huge huge epidemic right like it's it's not a small thing at this point and yeah it's a tough one it's a tough one overall for everybody involved for everyone that's that's dealing with it right a lot of people don't see that like what's actually happening so a lot of people maybe just shut the you know the blind like kind of put the shutter up right yeah, that's exactly why I wanted to have you on to kind of shed some light on these things. I mean, I guess I want to ask, um, you said that you've been doing this for five, six years now. What, how much fentanyl and drug-related incidents are you responding to compared, like now compared to when you first started? Does, the, the, it, it, does it seem like the trend is going up or has it stayed the same the entire time? Fentanyl's gotten worse, uh, in my opinion. But that's just that's just my opinion. I mean, like I think most people would agree with me. You know, I think most people would. Um, yeah, I think most people would agree with me to say that it's gotten worse, for sure. Back then, when I first got into this, it was not nearly as prevalent as it is now. There were different like alcoholism is always a thing. So people are always going to get drunk and fall or like do something stupid, domestic violence, right? All these things that happen that have happened, they've also, you know, somewhat gotten worse too, in a way, more frequent. Um, and, and the drugs have just taken off, right? Like in terms of fentanyl, in terms of opiates, fentanyl seems to be laced in a lot of things too. And there's a lot of meth use as well. Uh, crack it depends on where you are exactly but a lot of these major cities have have these same issues again just getting back to the the day-to-day -day type of instances you deal with um when you said that you typically will deal with like two to four overdoses in a shift how long does it take to treat somebody and like how much of your shift is spent actually you know grappling with this i mean 
you know, some days, some days you can't have a shift where you don't see, don't have an overdose, but oftentimes when you do deal with that, if, you know, you, I've had, I've had four in a shift before I've had two in a shift, but I would say, you know, at least one a shift is pretty accurate. So you could spend anywhere from an hour to three hours, but with offload delays, you could also spend up to 12 hours with them, 10 hours. Right. So can you, can you explain what that means? Offload delays? Can yeah. You that? So, so basically what we do is we go to the call for the patient that's had this overdose. Uh, we may render treatment or they may have already received Narcan, which would be, can be administered by anybody because uh, there are kits out there that people can use on each other. So if they're, you know, depending on their stability, if they're, if they're, you know, hemodynamically stable and they're maintaining their airway and they're able to oxygenate it properly and all their vitals are okay, but they, they have a possibility of having a downward spiral, like say they, um, you know, a poor historian, you don't know their medical history. You don't know what they took. You don't know how much they took. They're not presenting you know, appropriately, you could be placed on what's called an offload delay because the hospital doesn't have a spot for them to go, a bed for them to go into to be monitored. So we have to uh, basically wait with them on our stretcher and we, they're our patient um, and we will be monitoring them until we get them into a hospital bed. So with offload delays, those can be, you know, 20 minutes, they can be 30 minutes, a lot of the time they are hours and they can be upwards of eight to 12 hours is not unheard of. Okay. So when you said that there might not be a hospital bed for them, does this kind of, does it translate more or less perfectly from the rate of response? You said that you have in a shift like 10, 10 ish, 10, 15%. Uh, is that how many, uh, like, is, does that translate over to how many hospital beds are being taken up by people with drug, like opioid and fentanyl stuff in the hospital? Yeah, I think that's fair to say, like five to 10, you, you know, like it, 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 again, it's gonna go back to some of the areas that you work in. So certain hospitals in certain cities are definitely going to have, or even, you know, for the states, um, certain states and certain townships are gonna have different problems and different levels of drug and alcohol use. Uh, so that's gonna vary, but that being said, it's not uncommon to have five to 10% yeah, of those beds being preoccupied by, you know, someone that has overdosed on drugs, someone that is too intoxicated to take care of themselves, someone that uh, is unable to make decisions for their own, um, you know, for their own good. So these are kind of things that that get taken care of or take up a spot and they can be on that hospital bed you know, they could be admitted to the hospital as well, right? So they could be there for days. It's hard to say, but a lot of the time they'll get what they need and then they'll be released after seeing, you know, the physician and getting potentially some orders for treatment. You said that, you know, you, you brought up a valid point that different communities struggle with different levels of fentanyl problems. Um, do, do you communicate at all with any other, uh, healthcare systems or, or paramedics in other regions where you can kind of juxtapose your, your, uh, problems, uh, compared to other cities problems. And if, if what you're describing, I guess what I'm really asking is the, how bad is the problem where you are compared to other cities? 
Right. And I think I think a lot of the neighboring cities, we, we you know, we have similar issues, to be honest. I think I think a lot of them do. And, yeah, we do get to talk about these things. We see each other sometimes, not all the time, but you do cross borders when, say, one hospital or one city is overrun or they have no ambulances available. You do go into other areas to take care of calls if need be. Or you may have to transport to another hospital uh, for certain reasons, for, say, trauma, you know, a trauma team is required. So you have to go to a certain hospital for that. you know, depending if you have a stroke patient, you have to go to a stroke center, depending on your area. So, yeah, you do get to talk and kind of get the vibe. A lot of people know each other from previous. And, um, yeah, I think a lot of the a lot of the issues are similar, mo- most of them, unless you're in a really small town. Like, unless you're in a really small place, you know, 30,000 and less some of those problems start to kind of dive out, right? Because you don't have public access for transport. You don't have public transport like buses or, you know, taxis. So that's, that's kind of the outliers, but the major cities, I would say, you know, 60, 80,000 plus for sure. You know, any kind of downtown cores where you're going to have low income housing and certain, certain issues that are more prevalent in certain areas. Are there certain times of the month that seem to be worse than others? And I guess I'm kind of, I'm, I'm asking in a way if this kind of revolves around people's access to welfare money or any kind of employment benefit, unemployment benefits and this and that, because you've, you always hear the rumors that mm-hmm. at that time of the month, that's when alcohol sales go up, when lottery mm-hmm. ticket sales go up. Yeah. Is this a similar phenomenon with uh, fentanyl and most opioids? Most people do say that, you know. Most people do say that. Um, I think it. I think it. It depends if maybe you're a little bit superstitious at the same time because you can have, you know, it's funny. Like some of us can have shifts where we don't do anything much. Like it's just very like mundane. It's far between, but it it happens, right? And you can have a streak like that. Um, I would say for sure the first week of every month is always one that you see increase in domestic violence. You see increases in certain things, right? So yeah, drugs and that, because for sure, unfortunately, a part of certain, the, the darker side of society that people don't see, you know, as much as a lot of people don't want to, don't want to comprehend it or don't want to know it's there, it is happening where people are living lives that, you know, you you couldn't really imagine right so they are you know they are taking advantage of certain certain benefits right there's just no no way to argue that i wanted to kind of ask you and again like i'm not this isn't going to be an exact science but what are what are some of the typical demographics of someone who is od'd on fentanyl or opioids in terms of age race sex anything like that do you notice any kind of a an overarching pattern you know that's interesting because there's actually no pattern whatsoever it could be any age it could be any culture any race it could be female male i think probably certain stats would be able to tell you exactly what you know what the stats are 
But that being said, just being out in the field for the time I've been um, involved with it all, I could say that there's no real pattern. Um, I think that in the lower income housing, you do naturally have some certain demographic that struggles with certain things. And, and whether that's childhood trauma, whether that's current trauma, like current abuse, current addictions, socioeconomic status, certain things like this that have maybe been brought up as a norm for them when they were young. So I would say age-wise, it seems like the, el- the older you know, part of this system of, of drug and alcohol abuse and that, the, it seems like alcohol is more prevalent in an older populace, whereas drugs are more prevalent in the younger populace. For myself, from what I've seen, um, it's not always the case, but it's, it seems that the, you know, there's a lot more drugs going on. It seems like fentanyl is in a lot of things that people may not, you know, think, think it's there. Right. And it's, it's almost like a surprise kind of, uh, experiment of sorts that they're just producing in their, in their, in their house or wherever they they may be in the street. Right. These are street drugs. So they're, they're just, you know, you don't know what you're getting. Okay. So there are instances where maybe someone from a higher socioeconomic status or, or wealth would, would come across it, but it sounds like typically you're going to be responding to more downtown incidents than North end incidents. I think that's safe to say. Yeah. I think it's safe to say it's not unheard of it's just to see drugs and, you know, alcohol uh, in, in, you know, higher social status areas. But that being said, it's always, it's always more popular in the downtown course. Uh, or certain areas where you just know that's where it's, you know, it's, it's heavily populated with, with, with drugs or homelessness or shelters. Uh, you know, it's, it, yeah, because, and a lot of the time that's because of the, the prices of, of living or the shelters that are nearby. Right. So they're, you know, trying to get a, a warm bed at night or trying to get a meal. So a lot of the times it's just this like circle, right? And there are there are ways to get better. There are treatment centers, there are rehab facilities, but it's sometimes it's just not in the, the cards for some people. That's what it seems like to me. I, I did want to ask you uh, if we can just hone in on some specific instances now. Uh, we can get back to more of the overarching like uh, social questions later on. But I wanted to see if you could uh, recall any particular instances or just walk us through what a basic, uh, or sir, not basic, just what, what a typical response would be when you come to a scene and there's a fentanyl overdose. Can you walk us through generally what, what you do, what happens, and what your uh, protocols are? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So. I can give you a good example of uh, what it would look like, right? So, so say we're, you know, stationed at our at our base, our main base, and we'll get a tone over the the PA saying we have a code four, or depending on where you're from, it might be different. But I'll, you know, I'll use our terminology where where we are. So, uh, you know, lights and sirens. Basically, you're going to 
do a call and what you'll do is you'll go out to your truck you have a minute to respond uh, in the in the ambulance and then you'll go out on the radio and they'll give you the details of where you'll be going and you'll get any kind of details involved so you know it might come in as a suspected drug overdose patient is unconscious you know whatever age and gender they may be uh so we go to the call and it's to uh uh it is to like we'll say it's a a shelter a shelter for for you know dr drug users and homelessness sorry i just i don't mean to interrupt but i just did want to ask really yeah. really quickly who seems to be the ones um calling in the ods are they other drug users or are they just general public people that notice it well it can be someone in the shelter if it happens in a shelter it can be someone like another home it could be an, another bystand like some a bystander for example that's calling it could be someone that drives by that sees someone sleeping on the side of the road and they think they're overdosed because you know they're sprawled out on the grass but really a lot of times they're just needing a sleep so that's a lot of the times you know in the summer uh especially we'll be going to calls like this same thing but when we get there they're just sleeping so usually they'll just tell us to, you know, very get kindly, they'll tell us yeah. to get out of there. Yeah, very kindly. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. So, you were just saying no, that's okay. your, your response, right? To the. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so basically, we go lights and sirens, uh, you know, to this call and a shelter, right? So this is a place where certain people with certain addictions or drug use can stay. A lot of the times these places are filled up, you know, people can't even get in there a lot of the time because they're so busy. But anyhow, so we go to a shelter and we're told that, you know, the patient's uh, kind of in the back back room area, bathroom, and we, we get in there and, you know, uh, patient's unconscious, lying supine, face up on the ground, um, slow breathing. Right. So a lot of the times with opiates, you get a really slow, it slows everything down with opiates. So when someone uses fentanyl or smokes fentanyl and there was, uh, you know, some fentanyl drug paraphernalia beside and it just just happened to be that this person's uh, friend or, you know, uh, person there with him, friend, I guess you could call uh, him, uh, had called and requested it. So anyhow, so we're there and patient's unconscious, slow breathing. What we want to do first is we want to make sure that the patient has a pulse. I can see he's breathing. He's got a, got a pulse. So basically my partner goes to establish an IV to administer Narcan, which was already administered twice prior, prior to us getting there actually by, by a bystander in the shelter. Uh, and then basically I would start, you know, doing airway management. So I'd insert an OPA, which is kind of a basic airway. And the fire department is there, so I get them, you know, to pull out a breath valve mask, which is a BVM, we call it, to help breathe for the patient because he's not breathing adequately due to the, the, the you know, the fentanyl, suspected fentanyl. Check the pupils. They are pinpoint. That's very common with fentanyl use. It's a good way for us to check uh, if, if that is the, the problem causing it, causing what's going on. Uh, we get a full set of vitals, and then patient would rip off everything and wake up because he already had two Narcans administered prior to us getting there. It can take five to 10 minutes to kick in. It can take longer. It sometimes doesn't work. It just depends like on how much the patient took and other factors as well, if there's other drugs on board or alcohol. So in this case, the patient did wake up, kind of sat upright. We were like, no, no, stay down. 
you're going to like stay down because a lot of times these people can become violent. So that being said, we, you know, with the assistance of the fire department, get him outside, carry him out and transport to the hospital. Now we would, we would also go guns a blazing for certain types of calls for this one here. He had woken up. Now he doesn't require an airway. He's maintaining his own, you know, his own airway. He's breathing adequately at this point. He's oxygenating well. Uh, he's almost returned to full mentation as well. A little bit sleepy, but that's very common for post-Narcan administration. So at this point, you know, we would get, naturally we'd get to the eMERGE, and if they don't have a spot, you would go to your offload delay. So that's kind of, and that's a good example for a lot of these calls. Because a lot of them play out like this. They may be already awake when you get there. They might not. It depends, right? So, but but it's but it's a lot, it's the same thing, you know. It's the same thing either way. A lot of the time, it's the same symptoms. Uh, so your you know your treatment is a lot of the time breathing for them or administering Narcan, which would alleviate that opiate. And this this is part of the reason I wanted to have you on is because it's hard for me to fathom sometimes what is actually going on for the frontline responders like yourself because well we are largely in bed sleeping cozily in our warm rooms you're out there at 2 a.m reviving these people and often like you mentioned i i hope you can expand a bit on it uh you you help revive them back to life and they get violent with you yeah well, uh, a lot of the time. how how common is that and you know is it strictly because yeah. you you blew their high or can you can you tell me about well, that well they are in a bit of a confused state at that point but it is it is completely that at the same time that that you kind of blew their high and they're they're not happy about it right a lot of times it happens that way where they're like well i want to be high i want to be high and they wake up and they're not and they're angry about it, right? So what was your first part of that question? I just want to go back to that, um, what you said first there. Oh, I was just kind of hoping that you could outline for people, um, you know, the, the the aggression that you have to deal with, despite the fact you're trying to help these people live. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the contrast between what people think is going on and what's actually going on when you're right. tucked away in bed at night. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Yeah, you say that because it's, it is most of the time, you know, at two, three, four in the morning, right? It could be at during the day too. But yeah, it's, um, it's interesting for sure. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not what people think naturally, right? It's like a lot of people like to look at the world through rose colored glasses, but it's not it's not quite that way right there are like some dark parts of it and unfortunately someone someone's kind of has to deal with it uh, and someone has to try to help it too you know because i think if you just shut if you shut everything down or you know pull everything or pull the plug on these people these you know certain demographics that have these issues i think that that gets tricky too but it is tough dealing with it for sure i mean burnout rate is like five years for paramedics right now and i think that's yeah across just, north america i did want to ask you about that but one more thing about this part first is have you actually been physically assaulted by anybody that you helped revive you know what i've been attempted to you know i, I people have attempted to like like throw throw hands or arms or sp spit i've been spit at 
you know, most of the time it's just verbal, verbal, like, but it, but it depends, right? Because I'm also quite big of a person, right? So, so I'm a large person. So I think, you know, for, for other people or for patients, yeah, they, they kind of pick up on that a little bit. Um, but it's no shortage. Are there a lot of female paramedics that are typically smaller individuals and they, do they kind of defer these calls to, you know, bigger, bigger dudes like yourself or, or is it just first come sometimes? Yeah. Sometimes, you know, like if you're, if you have a violent patient and you're working with a partner, that's just not, you know, as like, it's just a physical mismatch, then for sure, for sure. We're going to help each other in that way. Like I would take over a call. Um, but that's just, you know, that's just like how we work, right? We just work together like that. Like it would just be nonsensical to have like a large male aggressive patient with, you know, say my partner is somebody that's 130 pounds soaking wet, 110 pounds, say even, right? That's, you know, a female that's half this person's size or less than half half their size, right? I'm not, we're not going to risk putting that person in danger, right? They wouldn't feel comfortable with that. And I would always offer to be like, yeah, I'll take this call. It depends too, because if you have a large police presence with you that are like detaining the patient and you're, you know, sedating them or you're restraining them, these sorts of things, hopefully that is happening, that you are able to restrain them and sedate them or have options that, you know, you have the fire department there, you have police there to help to get hands on that's going to be a, a big difference maker. But if it's just you and your partner and other allied resources are depleted, you have to sometimes either, if you don't have an egress route, yeah, you have to, you have to try to always think diligently. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are among the paramedic community that you deal with? What, what is the common sentiment towards this, this fentanyl issue? Like, or do most people just kind of see it as part of their job or is there a real frustration with the seeming in increase in its prevalence or like what, what are the paramedics saying to each other about this issue? I think, I think everybody has a sense of duty when we get a call. Like it's like, it can come in as like an overdose or it can come in as, you know, drug related unconscious, or it can come in as, mental health, alcohol, drug use. I think there, like for a lot of us, there is a sense of pride in what we do. So we do it anyways. Like we may not, we may not want to, but at the same token, we, we, we feel this, this sense of duty. And I think that's what a lot of us feel and that that's what keeps us going. And if you didn't have that, I think you would fall apart pretty quick. Because if you don't have that pride or that sense of duty, I think you can you can really spiral yourself, whether that's at work or outside of work. I feel like you can struggle way more than, you know, if you just see it as that, because it may not be pretty, it may not be perfect, but you're going to do your damn best, right? So if you can have that mentality about it, it's not bad. But yeah, sure. I mean, at the end of like a weekend or at the end of two long shifts or even at the end of your your you know shift when you're in your 11th hour and you think you might be going home but then you get an overdose at the end of your shift right and it's is it different from another call where say you know it comes in as a four you know a 35 year old vsa which would be vital signs absent 
you know, I think most of us want to go to that vital signs absent to try to save somebody, right? But but at the same token, I think it depends on who you are. Yeah. I think I go to every call with the mindset of I have a, I have a duty. I have a duty. I'm here for a reason. I have to do my job and I'm solely focused on it's one call at a time. I don't need to worry about other things. I need to worry about this one call, this one patient. Well, sometimes more than one patient, but you know, one call at a time. So for me, once I get that call, can it be frustrating? Absolutely sometimes. But I think it's it it's they happen every day. So it's like, okay, let's go. You know, it's 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 not not a huge deal to most people. It's just another call, basically. Of course, if you get nailed with five of them in a shift, it's not so fun. <laughs> I think mo- most of us would agree. Yeah. Well, I, I I'm just I'm thinking, you know, at any workplace, there are people people that work together. They talk. They say, you know, if if the boss did pursued this policy with our employees, or if we did this with production, you know, we'd be in a much better place and we'd be able to deal with our problems a lot more effectively. Uh, what is, I know it's a lot more complicated for a job like yours, but compared to someone in a, you know, a production plant, but, uh, that's just my clumsy way of kind of asking, what are the paramedics saying to each other about, you know, what, what should be done here to kind of either alleviate the amount of stress that's put on the healthcare system with this issue, or are there other routes that should be pursued that aren't being pursued? I think it's a lot of it's lack of funding and resources, you know, and it seems like the funding that's being used isn't being used in the right areas. Um, you know, you see, you see it constantly where places don't have beds for people, simple things like that, right? Where people don't have like this community uh, of, you know, drug users or homelessness or, you know, different different issues that we're, we're talking about. I think that, uh, you know, there's no quick fix. It's, it's several different systems, right? So you have, you know, these support homes, you have these shelters, you have some really great ones that give out a lot of food, daily and provide beds but there's only so much space you have a lot of people dealing with these issues right so you know giving out narcan kits is something that uh has been talked about in certain areas some areas they're already giving them out and they're already giving them out like candy you could say basically right or these kits are very accessible to general public so you have a lot of these overdoses happening and, you know, unfortunately, there's so, so much drugs in the system already. This, the system's already overwhelmed with drugs, how they're getting in and out, you know, who, who really knows, obviously, black market or illegally through the streets, because a lot of the time it's used cheap, right? It's uh, fentanyl is like a cheap additive they would use to a drug to, quote unquote, make it stronger. Um, but a lot of, you know, a lot of the time it's just making people, uh, killing people is what I'm trying to say. So we do, we do talk about it, but it's something that a lot of us have just accepted now as just the norm. It's just there and we're there to deal with it and pick up the pieces. That's, that's kind of the reality right now. The hospitals are overwhelmed in most areas. So these offload delays are, you know, affecting everything, right? And then when you, when you have 
these these calls come in so frequently, it for sure takes up space. You know, I think what could help is having a large facility where there would have to be a physician there, potentially one or two, depending on how many patients or how many, you know, I wouldn't, I'm not sure if you would want to call them patients or not, but a facility where you could have several different beds and some resources and a doc to, you know, a doc and a few nurses or some PSW, some staff, some assistants, um, to have these people go there if they overdose. So like an alternative care route. So for paramedics, how that would affect us, we'd we'd be taking them there. They would get cleared by the physician, they'd be monitored and they would be released from that physician at a certain point in time, rather than going to an emergency department and taking up a bed there. Because obviously the emergency department is dealing with trauma, strokes, you know, respiratory diseases and illnesses, all kinds of stuff, right? End of life, uh, you know, VSAs, there's there's just so much other th- other stuff going on, right? So I think, you know, it's going to take a lot of money. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, like, unfortunately, that's just the way it is, uh, whether that's expanding the hospital or, you know, these shelters. Yeah, it's, it's just a huge, huge overhaul. And I think we're behind, we're behind, you know, by a lot of years now, I think. Yeah, and in most areas. and there are a couple different uh, policy prescriptions and actually programs that are going on now that I kind of wanted to ask you about. But just before we move on to that, um, you mentioned earlier that the police are sometimes involved with these. Now, can you help me understand this? Because I'm under the impression that fentanyl is illegal, and that if somebody ODs on fentanyl, they large they would largely probably have more narcotics on them, physical narcotics right. on their body, right? Yep, yep. Are the police automatically involved in an overdose response? Or when, when does that come into, into play? Right. A lot, of the, a lot of the times, you know, I'm not sure on their end exactly how they investigate it. Or, or you know, I don't know all the details on what they do exactly. Because a lot of times we're in and out fairly quick depending on the situation. Sometimes we get there and the person's sitting upright and they were Narcan 10 minutes ago and they're alert and oriented and they're saying, I'm not going to the hospital. It's not happening. No way. You don't come near me. Right. And, and, you know, the police may be there and there may be drugs there. A lot of the times from what I've seen, they're not confiscated. There's, you know, it's just, that's, that's what it is. It's uh, you know, they're like, I know that there is public access, certain, you know, safe injection sites and these sorts of things where you're giving out. I'm going to ask you about crack that. Pipes, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and then, you know, there are like methadone treatments as well that people are on. Right. So it's a, you know, a prescription of methadone to try to wean off of these, these addictions. Right. But at the same time, yeah, you have these safe injection sites where, you know, crack pipes are being handed out uh, and certain, certain things are being handed out. Right. So it's, you know, how it affects the whole pop population of the of, of who we're talking about and what, what problems we're talking about who knows so it sounds I mean, like it's a it's a legal gray zone where the police aren't necessarily involved unless what there's some sort of set of extreme circumstances where they have to be called for like you said like don't quote me on it but i think potentially that if there's like signs of trafficking or selling like not personal use okay 
don't quote me on it. I'm not 100% on sure, that. Sure. But I do believe that if it's personal use versus trafficking, because obviously if there was any kind of trafficking, I've never actually been to any kind of call where I've seen someone, you know, uh, that was being arrested or that was overdosed and had a large amount that was suspected to be trafficking. All of it's just personal use. It's like small kind of amounts, right? Okay. And it's interesting. You brought up this, uh, this issue of safe supply, which th this has been very interesting to me as of late because I follow on Twitter. There's a, a national post columnist named Adam Zivo. Uh, for anyone out there, it's at Zivo Adam, Z-I-V-O-A-D-A-M. And he focuses almost exclusively on this safe supply fraud is what he calls it. Because what he says, and he shows every day, every single day, he posts a picture from Reddit where people get, this is his allegation, is that people get their safe supply, they sell it for an increased market value, and then they buy more fentanyl with it, which leads to more fentanyl deaths. Right. So... Every day he posts a picture. He says, here's your daily photo photo of safer supply and right. re brand new Reddit posts every day of people advertising their, the pills that they got, yeah. how much they're selling them for. And, you know, just, just DM them and you can get it. Right. <laughs> and so his argument with yeah. that is that uh, the safe supply stuff isn't even powerful enough for a regular fentanyl user anyways. So what they do is yeah. they sell it to yeah. amateur users or new users, which creates new addicts. More, and then yeah. they buy, obviously, like I just said, they buy more fentanyl with their newfound cash cow. And then they go and get more ODs and their, their little drug circle has more ODs because of this kind of idea, which yeah. seems to be implemented by like well-meaning, <laughs> well-meaning liberals, like bleeding heart liberals that want to help, but yeah. Do, do you do you yeah. do you see any evidence of what I'm saying here? Oh, I know I totally get what you're what you're saying and yeah, I you know it 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 kind of it kind of in a way it blows my mind the reality of where we're at now, right? Like like it's like okay, we have this massive issue. It's like okay, let's try this. And it's just something that's it's like wow, now this is a thing. <laughs> now this is happening. <laughs> and I don't know if there was a real deep thought on how it was going to turn out. Like, like if you said this to, you know, if you said this to everybody that saw everything going on and you said, how is it going to look in 15, 20 years? Like, like real, like really, how is it going to look? And it's hard. It's, it's hard to say, you know, it's hard to say if you, didn't have it or if we didn't have these safe injection sites or these you know places where you could go in to basically get get your dose and basically go off if you didn't have them would it be as accessible maybe it's hard it's hard to say right because they're still going to get those drugs i think either way but is it creating more new users potentially it could for sure it could for sure be i th i think that there's there's such a large, it's such a large problem in major cities and homelessness and, and uh, yeah, it, it's, it's really hard to say if it's actually making any difference or if it's just staying the same.
Yeah, and I, I don't mean to put you on the spot if this isn't necessarily your area of expertise with the safe injection or the, the safe supply uh, centers and whatnot. Uh, I just mean to ask because it, it directly affects your job every day. If these things are actually net negatives, then they're not helping anyone and they're making the healthcare system more stressed and they're really they're they're screwing up your day. Like they're really yeah. making like, your job oh, harder than it needs to be, right? Oh, for sure. And you know, it's it's just impo- for us to say it's impossible. I think I think the people that might have those answers would be the ones actually working there. The ones that are actually like seeing these people like are they coming back all the time are they getting worse are they getting better or or i'm i'm it's it's hard to know right i'm skeptical of the answers these people would provide because again i'm not going to disclose anything about where you're located but i did look up uh, a safe supply site that's in your Mm -hmm. direct city and yeah these people based on how they present themselves um they are very woke, very social justice warrior presenting in the way that they display uh, trans rights stuff. Uh, they all okay, have pink yeah. hair. They all look like right. they went to a liberal arts college. Like you can exactly right. tell the right. kind of person. I, I don't know how objective that person is going to be about what they're doing because people tend to not want to believe that what they're doing is harmful. Right. Right. <laughs> of so, course. That would make too much sense. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to ask you, too, if you've heard about this guy named Michael Schellenberger. He, no, this is another alternative possible policy. And then, again, I'll just mention it. You can comment on it as much as you like. Um, his name is Michael Schellenberger. He ran for uh, the governorship of California. And obviously, their problems with this issue are, I imagine, 100 times worse than what we're dealing with here in Canada. But one of the, the planks that he ran on in regards to fentanyl was a almost mandatory prison option where instead of uh, trying to give them free drugs or just dealing, like you said, just this is the status quo now. We deal with it and we, we try not to think about it too much. His, his argument is uh, if we have a repeat offender, um, you either you give them the option of either going to treatment or prison. And if they do not finish treatment, they will go automatically to prison because his argument is that we can't have these people in society. They, they, uh, they, they cause a lot of property dam uh, property crimes. Uh, I, I'm under the impression they, they do a lot of uh, thefts to uh, yeah. satiate their habits and that uh, they're shooting up in front of people in in what used to be peaceful places in different cities, you could walk around with your children and you can't do that any longer because of these. Well, that's absolutely yeah, true. So his, yeah. again, his argument is that we, whether you like it or not, you're going to have to deal with this problem or else you're going to prison because we just can't keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. And I know that, I don't know if you've ever heard of this policy prescription, even um, the premier of Alberta, Danielle Smith, She's looking into doing this too in Alberta because of how bad it's getting in some of their cities. Uh, right. So I don't. Have you heard of this? First of all, no, I haven't. And like I, you know, I try to stay up to date on a lot of things online, but with my like busy schedule, it's just it hasn't been, you know, at the top of the pri- priorities for for just staying on top of some of some of it. But I, you know, looking for an answer, right? 
we, we almost have to find one because it's if you leave it this way, you know, I can I can imagine someone could pull numbers on this, but I, I you know, I'm sure you could pull numbers to say that it's gotten exponentially worse. So that being said, what options do we have? Right. Like what, you know, when we offer support systems and, you know, maybe 60, 70 percent of these drug users, common repeat drug users are turning it away. Right. So at what point do you have to say, yeah, you know, we have to go to something else. We have to use some sort of other method to prevent these people from continuing because it is affecting you know public safety it's it's affecting uh, a lot of different things right in in the communities so you know it's it's such a 50 50 right because i feel like it's just so split down the middle uh, especially in north america where you have yeah like you were saying like you know we have this left and right and we have these two varying opinions and it's it's hard to say because right now it's just not working whatever we're doing right now isn't working and and it it's it's almost like everyone's just doing what they can do in their personal position but but at the but at the top there's a big disconnect like there's a huge disconnect from what reality is to like what people th- think is happening you know because because at the, at a street level i believe in most places uh you're seeing you know a huge decline huge decline with a lot of these things uh in in a bad way in a bad decline way you know it's not getting any easier yeah i mean because i'm thinking of uh there's the there's this thing in uh in the in like economics called the pareto principle right um it says that you know roughly 80 percent of various consequences and outcomes come from about 20 percent of the causes and this applies to almost any field of human endeavor if if you look at the sociology of it uh so i get what i'm asking with this is um that if the law holds true then we're going to say that about 20% of the addicts out there are causing 80 you know 80% plus of the calls you have to deal with do you find that there is a high habitual connection to what the calls you like are there patients that are just known to the system in such a way because they are so frequently there? Oh yeah. <laughs> There's several, several. Yeah. And I would say like majority of places have these people where it's, uh, they're frequent flyers, they're repeat patients, right? Like we don't like to use certain terminology because it's offensive or it's considered inappropriate or unprofessional. So we have to be so careful with our terminology now, too, uh, you, you know, because because we are under the public eye so much. So these sorts of things, they really like to put a cap on if you have the wrong attitude or if they deem your attitude not what they consider appropriate. So, yeah. Yeah, it does. And I guess, again, th- there's this there's this split between... Um, you know, when people talk about this issue, it seems to me like an overwhelming majority of the conversation revolves around, uh, the addicts themselves and these people that are obsessed with trying to, you know, and I'm not denigrating their, their cause in life, but the people that are, 
deeply enmeshed with trying to solve this, whether they're the safe injection people or the politicians that are proposing policies and this and that. But no one really takes the time to think about what this is doing to the frontline workers like yourself, or even in, in I, I imagine you have to deal with some stuff where um, you come across Tim Horton's workers who have to deal with addicts ODing in their washrooms constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Especially certain, certain, spe- you know, specific locations. Right. And a- every city is going to have this. Every place is going to have this where they have certain locations that are more prone to this. Um, and usually it is those lower socioeconomic, you know, people of status, uh, certain status, right. Uh, certain areas that have the lower income housing that are surrounded by shelters. It's just, yeah, it is. And most of the time, all of the first responders know these locations and that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's the reality right now of it. Um, yeah. And yeah. And that's, what's really maddening to me is that people aren't seeing what it does to people like you. So, and, and you've talked about this a little bit earlier when you spoke of burnout rate. Um, can you, can you kind of explain the burnout rate? as you perceive it and, and what the fentanyl, how the fentanyl issue is contributing to the burnout? Yeah. So I think, I think right now, you know, I was just reading a stat the other day and I think it said 55% of uh, first responders uh, are burnt out basically after five years. I think it was paramedic specific as well for that. And 60% of paramedics are experiencing signs of clinical depression. So for sure, and I think it affects everybody, I, I, you know, especially with the shift work and, and, you know, the missed, missed meal breaks, the end of shift overtime that's forced, not being able to go home and see your kids for dinner, because by the time you get home, they're already asleep and you have to be up the next morning at 5 a.m., you know, to, to go do it all again. And, you know, it, it's not, it's not what you want it to be if you go to work that day and you know, you're getting spit at or sworn at or, you know, swung at those, those, those sorts of things. Right. It it does because all of a sudden you get home and you're expected just to flip it off. And some people are really good at it. Some people are, you know, it it just depends. There are ways of like coping with these things like exercise and having healthy uh, mental habits. Uh, There's lots of different ways you can, kind of mitigate some things but but it does catch up uh it does especially with the the volume that we're dealing with now so especially with you know the opiate crisis and everything going on with that is huge it takes up a huge portion of our capacity so yeah i think i i think there's a lot more to be done you know whether that's more more ambulances, more paramedics, whether that's more assistance to the healthcare system and hospitals uh, for more beds and more staff to, you know, tr- uh, monitor and treat these patients on these hospital beds, or more, more physicians, these sorts of things will, will help. What, how we're going to fix the systemic issue is another, and I think that's up to a lot of politicians and that's big, big decision-making, uh, which which will, you know, hopefully down the road make positive impact, but it won't be done overnight. I don't, I don't even think it'll be fixed in a decade, even if we started today with the best, the best possible method, you know, which is who knows. Right. Yeah. And I guess I wanted to ask you about uh, 
in regards to the burnout rate and, you know, uh, potential for, uh, mental trauma or, or even I, I imagine even PTSD for some people, if they've experienced enough violent, uh, imagery in, in their job, uh, yeah. on regular occasion, is it, is there actually anything that, uh, and, and again, you can explain a bit more about your, the organization you're in as vaguely as you can, like, is it a hospital? Is it a, a specific paramedic union or, and, and do they offer you guys any sort of support because everything you kind of said there seemed like it was just, it was, it was the individual had to find their own way to grapple with this problem. Is your workplace offering anything that can benefit you or your, or your coworkers? So we do have uh, outreach services where we have access to, um, you know, support workers and psychologists. And we also, yeah, so we do. We do have a few different places that we can go to for for help to talk to somebody. We do have also a lot of the you know, peer support team, uh, which you know, a lot of the times we'll follow up after you know they'll follow up after a traumatic call, uh, or a call that's potentially graphic or you know can cause PTSD. Right, PTSD being certain symptoms and signs that are prolonged for greater than four weeks. So, and that's important because you can have a bad call and then you can have three, four days that are just rough and you just, you have to process it and you maybe you have to talk it out with your peers. Maybe you have to talk it out with your psychologist or, you know, your support, support worker, depending on your situation. And sometimes if these symptoms and signs don't go away, like, uh, for three, four plus weeks, then yeah, you can be diagnosed with PTSD and these, it can last, it depends on how, the per the person. And it depends on the event that, uh, the person went through because, because different things can precipitate these kind of events that are traumatic. Right. So it might not be what you would expect. It might not be like that bloody, gore dramatic uh, tr trauma it might be a family member it might be something else that has caused this so you know lack of sleep unable to focus irritable not enjoying the same things anymore uh restlessness you know so a lot of these symptoms can be can range from mild to severe so to answer your question we do have support and sometimes it, it, it works. I think it's important to keep up on your mental health, to talk to somebody. Not everybody does. And, you know, I don't know exactly on stats on how many people actually do take advantage of these resources, but it is there. It's not going to fix everything. I don't think, I don't think anything really can, because I'm not sure that humans are necessarily supposed to deal with certain things naturally without being affected because it's just in our biome to react to these things. I, I agree. Yeah. So yeah, I think that either way, it's going to be kind of hard. It's going to be a tough one regardless. And, you know, you're going to see some things that you're going to either find ways to deal with, or you're just going to, you know, I think most people that aren't meant to do it are going to end up backing out of it or finding alternative things, which is okay too, because a lot of people go into paramedicine to, you know, see some stuff like they enjoy medical, like most of us love medical, right? So that's what keeps, keeps us there, I think. But a lot of us do, yeah, decide to, you know, say go part-time, do it a few days a week and then do something else just to, just to, you know, keep it different. 
you do so much of the same thing, it does, you know, it can get depressing. It can get overwhelming for sure and affect outside life. A lot of people struggle with their relationships and marriages and uh, that that sort of thing. What what do you find per like personally helpful uh, for dealing with some of these things that you encounter in your work? You know what I would say, exercise is huge. So whether that's you know walking every day, walking every day for even if it's fifteen minutes, even if it's ten minutes, is better than nothing. If you're frustrated, go for a walk. That's helped me immensely. Um, simple things like with, that. With headphones in or just nothing, uh, nothing depends coming what you in? Like, but no. I would keep it pretty, I'd keep it pretty light. Like, so if I were to listen to music, I would listen to like some Fleetwood Mac, almost like a background kind of music, just like chilled out. Like, you know, if you want to, like, sometimes I'll pump heavy, heavy stuff in the truck when I'm driving to work or whatever. But like when I'm going for my walk, it's like calm time and it's just me, no phone, no, I try to keep my phone distractions pretty low. Like I'll keep, you know, a lot of my, my stuff either not with me or, you know, notifications off sort of thing while I'm walking. Um, but a lot of times, yeah, no headphones, uh, just, just quiet, just quiet. And, and I find that helps, especially when the, if the sun's out even better, because that that's huge too, is just getting some sun. Um, but also just being outside and, and walking exercise is huge. So I try to do a few workouts every week. Uh, cardio, you know, once or twice a week with some weights, three to four days a week. And that, that's, I know I always feel better after a workout every time. It doesn't happen every day. You know, I do miss workouts sometimes, but I find exercise is huge and also, uh, having a good, you know, home life. That's, that's really important. Being able to see family and friends. That's, uh, you know, I would imagine going home to an empty house all the time and not really having anybody that you can call would get, it would get hard pretty quick dealing with some of the things you deal with. Yeah. The stress coupled with isolation, that seems like a recipe for mental problems. For a lot of people. Yeah. 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 And I think that, uh, I think naturally like, yeah, those negative emotions are going to come home with you, especially if you're, if you're not, if you don't enjoy life outside of work already. You know, if you don't have a lot of things to look forward to, it, it becomes pretty, pretty dull, right? And you have suicide rates going up too, uh, especially for, you know, s- certain certain people, like, uh, you know, uh, certain people that are facing certain issues. It's, uh, it hit, hits harder now, I think, more than ever, because you have just more, you know, social media, you have all these other factors, right, that are constantly weighing people down and, the economy has been hurt by COVID. So you have so much more going on for people. Um, yeah. Yeah. And sorry, can you outline, um, are you part of a hospital team? Is it a separate paramedic union? Like I'm not exactly sure Yes. what the structure of, of your work is. Like so that. basically we, the services that, I'm familiar with that I work in is it's all under the city and you work under a base hospital. So basically your base hospital are a panel of physicians that oversee the delegated acts that we perform. So the drugs we give, the indications, the contraindications, our different protocols and management of said protocols is basically under a base hospital, um, which would be 
like I said, yeah, a panel of physicians and other paramedics that also assist there. Um, and that's that's the governing governing body. And then we'd work under the city. So we actually don't have affiliation with the hospital. And I think that's most places. Um, most places are are more so like city. And so we do have a good union. Uh, it's not quite as good as other other services. So the fire department is has a very strong union. They've been around for a long time. So paramedicine's fairly young when it comes to uh, first responders. I guess you could say, you know, there's a huge difference in the 1980s versus now with what what we could do. A lot of the times back then it was like, you know, quote unquote diesel therapy, like load, load the guy in and, you know, drive as fast as you can. Whereas now we're just doing so much more. We're giving giving more and more drugs every year. We're doing advanced procedures. We're doing, you know, advanced testing and uh, 12 lead interpretation and, you know. A lot, a lot is of that because skills. they're offloading more responsibilities onto you or just the technology has developed to the point where you guys can do that? I think a little bit of both. I think at the end of the day, they always try to put the patient kind of like if they if they can justify getting us to do something that's going to make a difference. So they have added things in certain drugs that do make a difference um, pre-hospital, pre-hospital setting where we're, you know, administering these life-saving drugs or even you know just alleviating some 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 symptoms prior to hospital for patient comfort so yeah i would say the ones that they have added are are good additions but it's constantly expanding the scope and technology i think a lot of it is just kind of you know canada canada in specific is kind of late to the game a lot of the time what they like to do is they like to wait for other countries to trial things first. So they'll look at like European countries and the States and they'll see how certain things go. And then they'll adopt that three to five years later, typically it's, and sometimes even longer, like they're looking at, uh, you know, sequential defibrillation and certain, certain things right now that they may be adding in the future. But uh, again, Canada is usually late to the game for that sort of thing. With with regards to the the hierarchy of the hospital, um, are, are, do you find that they advocate pretty well on your behalf? Not specifically you, but you and the paramedics. And are they at the table when it comes to talking about fentanyl uh, policy prescriptions with, when when they're dealing with politicians and stuff? Are they at the table, or are they just kind of yelling into the abyss <laughs> with their ideas? I think that's basically it. I don't know. I think they may have one or two representatives um, potentially present, but but I don't think so. You know, I think a lot of the stuff the city deals with is is so separate from the hospital, and it's almost it's it's almost like the, the the hospital does sit down with our service, and I believe, yeah, with our service every month to talk about different issues and things going on. And there is conversations that go back and forth about certain things, but it's almost like we're all just, you know, in the same boat. It's almost like that's the, like, that's the norm. And it's like, there's, I don't know if, if any, if any of them are aware or not aware, but I don't know if any of them feel like they are capable of making a direct impact on our current situation. When you when there are these, I guess you would 
almost call them like employee employer roundtables. These monthly discussions you you talk about um, have, to the best of your knowledge, is has anyone from your side ever put forth any ideas about you know what can what can we do about this fentanyl problem? And here or here is just one simple thing we could do that would save a lot of time, hassle, money, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And like we have, you know, an employee relations committee and we have different things where we kind of collect ideas and, and see what we can do to make it, you know, suggestions for changes. And some of the time they're thrown out and some of the time they're looked at and then thrown out or, you know, maybe implemented. But, um, you know, for the fentanyl specific purposes, we have talked about you know, it's a great idea to be able to bring these people to an urgent care clinic that could monitor them temporarily and uh, discharge them and send them on their way. But there's just that, that's opposed to a hospital right, bed, as opposed to a hospital bed, like an emerged department um, where they would be, you know, hopefully more busy with these acute uh, respiratory illnesses or exacerbations of you know, COPD or CHF or having an active heart attack or, uh, you know, a, tra a trauma that comes in, right? So, you know, these more serious things, right, that, you know, overdoses can be very serious and they can be life-threatening if not taken care of. That being said, a lot of the times these uh, patients are just needing to sober up. They just need to sober up. And rather than taking up an emergency department bed uh, for, you know, five to 10 hours or more, or an, or, you know, or an ambulance crew, they could be at an urgent care facility where, you know, they have more space it has been brought up, but it's all liability and it's all, well, which, which urgent care, they don't have space there. They're tapped out. Right. So it's like, what alternatives there's right now, there's none, you know? There, you know, a lot of expansions have been happening at hospitals where they're adding things, but it just doesn't seem like it's enough. Still, it seems like they're yeah, refacing it. <laughs> I'm just doing, I'm I'm doing some like back of the napkin math in my head, yeah. and if like, tell me if you agree with with this kind of generalization. Could we say that on average, three p in in your specific area, three people a a day overdose? Is that fair to say? More than that, easily more. Okay, so what what would you say it is? Well, if there's you know, say, depending on where you work, you could have 25 ambulances on the road, right? So say, okay. So say, you know, 500,000 people in a city, say you have 27 ambulances on the road. Each ambulance does an average of two quote unquote overdoses a shift. So that's like 40, 40 to 50 overdoses. I would say more accurately on average, you could see like 15 to 25 overdoses in 24 hours easily. You're talking oh, about a, a big city, like like a Toronto no, size like city? like a 500,000 city. So a Hamilton exactly. size city. Okay. Yeah, like a Hamilton okay. size city, yeah. But even say in a place like, again, I'm not going to say where you are, but in a city your size, roughly your size, which we'll say is between 60 and 90,000, right? It, would you feel yeah. comfortable saying three people a day overdose, five, ten? What, what would you say? I mean, I, I would say, you know, five to ten in 24 hours is like probably fairly accurate. Uh, but you can see increases in that. You know, you could have five days in a row where you have because we're talking about 24 hours. Right. So that's, you know, say midnight to midnight. Um, you could have a lot happen in that 24 hours. You could have 
easily. I just, just, just like for sake of argument, let's go with the extreme low number. Let's say five a day. Yeah. Uh, quick back in the napkin math says that that's uh that's 1700 overdoses a year in a, well, you know, a, a smaller city. You could probably double that um, easily with like, say the encapsulation area. So like probably encapsulating, you know, say between 120 and 180,000, you know, so then I'm kind of curious about if you are aware of the general cost of, you know, if you incorporate uh, the, the the amount of money they pay you guys to go and help someone, the amount that of time that you spend there, uh, how much the Narcone is, uh, how much the ambulance ride is, if they need to be taken to hospital, like yeah. how, how much do you think we're talking about for one one person to be treated? You don't have to be extremely accurate. Just, just if you could do some quick If I, yeah, if I had to guess on one occurrence, yeah, I mean, you'd probably be looking at three to four thousand, probably three to four thousand dollars. So okay, so again, we'll take the low end. You know, we're talking about five million dollars a year in a in a small city is That's being low end, I would say some some would argue sure. squandered yeah. on on drug addiction that shouldn't even be there. And it seems like it might be being caused by just giving people free stuff, free money, free drugs. So that is pretty shocking in and of itself. And then you, like you said, you extrapolate that outwards to a city like Toronto. You got to imagine close. that. Yeah. Oh yeah. You got to imagine they're, they're, they're into shit. They got to be into like 50 million plus almost a year dealing with this I wouldn't problem even be alone. surprised if it's, if it's scratching a billion, you know, uh you know like yeah countrywide well even yeah. province-wide okay yeah wow. i mean okay. i mean maybe add in like vancouver you know like a big yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know downtown east side yeah. yeah because the thing is like that's like on the low side you know like even even the numbers i was giving like it's that's low end like i, I would even say 10 and 24 hours would be a low end projection yeah yeah, because these overdoses are also considered like it could be someone that uses fentanyl. So say, for example, right, uh, I'll just use this as an example, a 40 year old um, male, you know, uses meth recreationally, uses fentanyl recreationally, had his normal amount today, but just isn't feeling the greatest stumbling out in the street and just not really answering your questions appropriately, you know, somewhat confused knows who he is knows where he is doesn't really know what day it is or what month it is can't care for himself he's defecated and, and he's uh incontinent of you know urine and he has to be he has to go to the hospital that's considered an overdose if they're using fentanyl and they're altered even if it's minor it's still an overdose um so that's classified as an overdose. It may not be someone we're going to that's in cardiac arrest. It might not be someone we're going to that's in respiratory arrest. It might be just someone that's that needs to be monitored because, you know, that's that, that's kind of what we do, right? Like we we um, perform an eight to capacity test, and we are trained to kind of pick up on these things to to know if somebody can care for themselves or if they're at risk of you know if we leave them uh that they're going to uh decline and potentially die from it 
Is it similar to like the roadside sobriety test that police officers apply? It's not quite. It's it's not quite the same with the mo- with the actual mobility. But if they can't if they can't answer our questions, so say say for example, they're just they don't know they don't know their birthday. They don't know where they live. They're they're not answering your questions right. They're maybe slurring their words. They're stumbling. They can't they can't walk. Um. So it's not quite a sobriety test, but it's more of a natural test that we do. And, and it's almost just by having a conversation with them, you know, like just introducing ourselves and kind of, you know, introducing ourselves, who we are and uh, why we're there, you know, maybe who called and, you know, checking in on them or or seeing like what's going on. And maybe they're receptive. Maybe they're not. Maybe they get angry at you. Maybe they're maybe they're laying there on the grass and they're going you know in and out of consciousness right so in that case you you would you'd have to take them it just depends right um but if if they stand up straight and they perk right up and they they talk to me or they say buzz off and they start walking the other direction then that's kind of that's kind of it you know then then we we do our paperwork and and they walk off but but oftentimes it is you know they use some fentanyl and they're a little dozy they're a little sleepy they're too sleepy to be left by themselves. So they have to go to the hospital and they have to be monitored and sometimes, you know, um, woken up because they do start to deoxygenate if they fall asleep and they start breathing really slowly and the fentanyl effects are too strong for the body. So yeah, I would say at low end 10, 10 and 24 hours, some of them varying in, in, in uh, severity for sure. And again, just to kind of circle back to the very beginning of the conversation, um, when you first started, it wasn't nearly 10 a day on average, would you say? No, I would say it's, it was much less. You, you'd, you'd still have you'd still have it, but it just seems like it's more common now. And I, I think that's most places. Um, you know, we constantly hear about fentanyl and laced fentanyl here and certain spikes of it you know um oh so if like one batch is contaminated then, then a lot of, you're gonna see a bunch of people of in, that, in that time frame yeah. right yeah okay yeah and i've heard and i've read a lot about a lot of deaths um at certain time frames where that sort of thing is happening you know where there's like four or five deaths in one day and from a batch of fentanyl and sometimes the police will investigate those sorts of things right <laughs> like try to figure out like what's going on but it's just so hard to trace and it's so hard to deal with because it's all behind hidden doors and you know closed windows i and again i don't know if you have any direct kind of personal contact with any police officers i hope i can get one on the show yeah. for another installment of this kind of fentanyl uh, series i'd like to do mm-hmm. but uh do you have any indication about what they're what they're thinking about these days in regards to this I think a lot of them are pretty frustrated with it, to be honest with you. Like they get the brunt of it. A lot of the time they do. A lot of the times they're dealing with, uh, you know, these people that have these, these sort of problems in their life. And they're the ones that are kind of there dealing with the miscellaneous issues, like everything, everything in between. If, if, 
it could be anything, you know, some of the most ridiculous sounding things that the police are called to, to go aid and they're on scene there for an hour, uh, for, you know, behavioral stuff or things that are very minor, but they have to go to, to deal with. So I think a lot of them are frustrated and they don't like dealing with it for sure is the vibe. You yeah. Know. Cause it kind of seems like they're, they're being told that they kind of have to do law enforcement, uh, counseling. Uh, they have to do some, some degree of, uh, like your, your job, some medicine if need be right. like, a, do they apply, they apply Narcon too, right? I think they can in most places. I don't actually, I, I mean, I, I've never really seen them ever use it to be honest with you. Um, okay. All, all I meant to say with that is that yeah. they seem like they are oh. having a lot of roles thrown at them and yes. that the scrutiny is getting even worse. Everyone's taping every single thing they do all the time. Well, that's the and thing. They yeah. They're like, you know, people like people will see police and a lot of times they're not very happy. Like they're pissed off or whatever. And, and it's a little different. Whereas yeah, when we come in, a lot of times people are a little bit more relieved or they're a little bit happier a lot of the time. So yeah, they get it rough because, you know, they're there to be a counselor and a bit of a caretaker and a bit of a babysitter in some situations for certain situations. Right. Because some of it is just so nonsensical. Like it's, it's, it's some of it's really bad. Right. And you can, you could always, you know, take one side of it and say, well, um, you know, we need to do this. We need to do that. And then it's another thing to actually be on the front line to see it and kind of know the frustrations behind it. Because I think any person in their right mind can look at a situation and be like, this is out of control. And I think that's at the top, like whether that's our politicians that made decisions 15, 20 years ago, or people that took cuts from pharmaceuticals and made a lot of money profiteering and all this that has downright affected society. That's kind of a whole nother conversation too. Right. But, but on the police side of it, I think they take a huge brunt and, you know, you see a huge burnout rate with police and mental health um, problems are, are huge with police because they just, you know, you're expected to go from a, a very serious call, say someone's shot or someone's stabbed or somebody's violent and your coworkers hurt. And then you have to leave that call to go to, you know, potentially uh, some domestic violence that's very minor or not even domestic violence. We'll just say some noise complaint. You know, they go to a noise complaint and it's drug users and they're spitting and yelling and just, just, just not really being cooperative and they're just just causing issues right there's nothing really going on but they're expected to then be you know uh compassionate i guess you could say and maybe maybe not they're not expected to be compassionate but a lot of the times that's you know that's what we try to do right that's what we all try to do is is be compassionate and it's 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 a it's a different vibe yeah, I mean, before I ask my last question, um, is there any other issues that I haven't touched upon that you'd like to comment about or just let us know anything about fentanyl in general that uh, you'd like to kind of finish Touch off with on. before my final? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think so, but I'll say that, you know, it's a huge issue with, with t today's day and age uh, for sure, and it's something that people don't talk about too much. It's interesting because you'd think that 
people would want to talk about issues that actually are impacting the masses, right? And we're talking about a huge amount of people that are being impacted and taxpayers' dollars. And uh, yeah, you know, I think voting is important. I think I think knowing what your your political party stands for and and what changes they're possibly going to make it's going to be huge because there's a huge population that hasn't voted uh, still you know every year you always have a large amount of people that don't vote so I think it's important to to just kind of pick your side know what you stand for know what you believe and do what you can educate yourself it's it's not it's not easy though because again a lot of these things are behind closed doors and decisions are being made by politicians the only way is to really talk about it and uh you know spread spread information educate yourselves and make a vote try to make some change because we have to we have to figure something out because it's it's going downhill fast for i think everywhere in north america yeah well that's a good tie into my final question set um you're familiar with the various pills right like the red pill the black pill the white yeah. pill yeah yeah so do you think you'd be able to give us a red pill a black pill and a white pill about fentanyl uh well like is it uh kind of like let's see the red pill is a is a real uh, like a, a an uncomfortable realization that people should have about this well i think it it would be that if you're if you ever drive through your downtown or see these things and you and you it worries you or you think that if you live around the corner from it and you know you don't feel safe or comfortable with your walking with your daughter or your son because every time you walk by these drug druggies are you know yelling and being kind of like violent or aggressive in a way it's only going to get it's only going to get worse it's it's not going to get better with what's happening right now. I, I think that's kind of a, a scary reality. So, but the, that sounds like a red pill and a black <laughs> pill mixed together. So, what would be the white pill? Is there any is there any room for hope or optimism out of this situation? I think there is. I think that we need to figure out a better approach, though, like over the long haul you know, over the next 10 years, I think we need to figure out a better approach on how to, how to handle these issues and how to, how to create, I guess, you know, better opportunities, better outcomes. I mean, I'm trying to say better outcomes for these people, because at the end of the day, if we can mitigate how they affect everything, it would be better, you know? Um, so your white pill is that there is a solution perhaps, mm -hmm. or a trade-off that we can pursue. We just, we need to keep striving towards some sort of positive outcome for everyone instead of just accepting it as the status quo. Exactly. Like we have to, there has to be more discussion. There has to be more discussion. There has to be more focus on it. We can't just turn a blind eye, um, you know, because it is, it's so prevalent and it's, it's just happening every day. Yeah, man. Well, it's crazy. I, I, yeah, I mean, that's again, part of the reason I wanted to talk to you to shed some light on this. So, uh, I do appreciate your time. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with me. Um, 
I'd be welcome to have you back in the future if you want to talk about something else. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I hope I can, I hope I was able to give a little bit of insight and a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of cool, cool story kind of things or side side of it. Right. Cause it's always different hearing it from somebody that actually deals with it. And, uh, it's, 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 it's something that, you know, we deal with. And a lot of the times we still have a smile on our face and we deal with it. And sometimes it's, it catches up. And I think a lot of it is just be dealing with it in a healthy way. And, for some people it's not for everybody right like it's not it's not for everybody and it's it's getting harder and harder as first responders and even doctors and nurses and everybody involved in the that healthcare chain or the you know first responder chain i think it's it's going to be difficult because you are dealing with these things but uh you know no and again i on behalf of myself my family everyone i do thank you for the work that you do because most of us don't have the stomach to try and deal with these kinds of situations. And, you know, you are like the unsung heroes of the first responders, I think, because people just kind of take your, your role for granted. Uh, they don't really think about, they, I think people think more of the hospital than they do of the guy who gets them to the hospital. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. They just they think of yeah. that white coat, right? That shiny white coat looks so good. Yeah. Yeah, but you don't even get to there if, if guys like you aren't there driving them and making sure that they get there alive. So thank you for your uh, your service. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me. And I'd be more than welcome to, you know, more than happy to be uh, back in the future and talk more. Because I love I love talking with you. You always have a cool, uh, you know, cool questions and uh, cool things to talk about and bring up. And I always enjoy your take on on everything always talk about so Thank you for patronizing the Magenta Pills podcast. Stay tuned for your next prescription.